Well, good morning. Kip, uh, Kip was on vacation this week. He told me he cried at Disneyland uh, watching his niece talk to one of the figures. Uh, and he said I should use that as my opening line, that it would be a great intro hook for, uh, for everyone. But uh, there was something else he said in the conversation that kind of stood out to me. Um, I watch a lot of documentaries, and Kip knows that. And so he asked me if I ever saw the one with Martin Sheen narrating it. And I, I was like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I've literally probably watched over 200 documentaries on World War II. I don't know. I don't remember which one was Martin Sheen. Um, and then I kind of was thinking, um, I've watched over 200 documentaries on World War II. Uh, it's something really interesting about wars that they last three years, four years, five years, but they dominate uh, our thinking for so, so, so very long. Does that make sense? And I, I always talk about my college conversion experience and just what it was like for me to figure out faith in college. And then sometimes I'll feel like I wish maybe I didn't have to talk about my college background or testimony so much because people are going to get tired of hearing about Clemson, which is an ACC school, and nobody cares, and, you know, I, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I kind of think, well, I should come up with some new material than talking about my testimony, and I guess thinking about 200 documentaries on World War II made me realize there are things, there are times, there are, there are moments in history that just play more significantly than others in the grand narrative, either for us personally or for history or for culture, and for me, College plays big that way. Um, and I don't know what it is for you, whether it was losing a parent when you were younger, whether it was the divorce you went through, whether it was losing a job or going bankrupt, but there's certain things that play really big in your life, much bigger than everything else. And when I was first kind of orienting myself to really being engaged uh, in the Christian world in college, I had everybody on a pedestal. Um, I, I thought all the Christians there were like amazing people because they'd been Christians. You know, they were Christians. They identified as Christians. And so I really had them kind of in this lofty spot. And a couple months in, with, with just all of the weirdnesses that go on with Christians, I I was disillusioned. And I found myself in this weird space where I couldn't sleep at night because the fraternity brothers were coming in at 2 a.m. every night. You know, I had 8 a.m. Uh, engineering classes, and so they would wake me up or keep me awake. I didn't have any friends because that whole scene, trying to figure that out with Christians was weird. And so I was just doing a lot of reading, emailing friends at a distance because that's all I seemed to have was from uh, friends from the summer camp I'd worked at, and I would journal a lot. And I started to whine a bunch in that space. Um, and there was always a way that somebody was letting me down, always a way I was being offended, always a way that somebody wasn't meeting my expectations. And I was justified. And it hurt. And it was very real to me. But in all my conversations with God, he never really... Um, I think wanted to talk to me about the justification I had in, in people not meeting my expectations. What began to emerge was the conversation God wanted to have with me about the riches that I had in my relationship with him. And that although I'm so acquainted with my lack, that it was out of the overflow of grace and love that he wanted me to figure out how to tackle my problems. In other words, the lack was driving everything that I thought about and did in all of my prayers. People were wrong. People were bad. People had let me down. People needed to be punished. People needed to know. I needed to be able to get it out. All of the lack was driving everything. God, you have to vindicate me. You have to show that I'm just and, and that others aren't. Um, and so I operated out of this strong sense of my lack. And what I began to learn was that God 
wanted me to realize that's not where you can get going. You, you, can't, you can't take a first step in the right direction operating from lack. You can take a first step in the right direction, uh, right direction operating from understanding. You know, those people that are letting me down, they have challenges and obstacles, and I might not even know them. They might be very acquainted with pain or suffering right now too. Um, you can make a first step out of love. You know what? Even though I feel empty, in some ways what I really want to do right now is go love somebody. And there's a whole lot of people that need love. In fact, even if I love my enemy right now or somebody that I think has wronged me, it'll be the right thing. It'll somehow fill my lack even though I'm the one giving. And it'll probably change the nature of that relationship. And somehow I can take the first step out of love. I can take the first step out of forgiveness. I can take the first step um, out of a whole lot of things spiritual. Just go down the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, mercy, gentleness, self-control. I, I can initiate or take the first step out of any one of these things that has been supplied to me by the Holy Spirit but out of lack, all I can do is lament or cry out to God. I can't make that my strategy for approaching life. And so here's the crazy thing. Um, I find that sometimes I still struggle with self-pity. And I still struggle with the perceived injustices against me or the lack or the misunderstandings or the inability to be justified, even though I might know the whole part of certain stories or narratives that others might not. Or I, I still really struggle with that. Do, does anyone else? If you're a middle-aged family man, I guarantee you do. Um, and I think out of that lack is what motivates me to usually try to speak and say, how do I fill or how do I address or how do I speak to those hearts? And it was really interesting to me last week, we talked about tithing, we talked about money, we talked about church finance. Um, and I got more emails this week than I ever have, about 15 Facebook notes and emails. I even had one guy that has a Google search word on uh, the word tithing. So the minute a blog post went up, um, he emailed me, said, never apologize about talking about money, and oh, by the way, do you need my services as a consultant? Um, thought, that one, thought that one was interesting. But I, I heard from 15 different people, and it was all really significant, positive stuff. People that have a lot and people that don't have very much and are struggling to figure out how do I be rich or generous or giving if I seem to lack the resources. There's just a lot going on. And the big realization for me this week was uh, this. I kind of wrote it down. I tend to be after hearts. I, I at least want to be. I make it my aim to be after your hearts, not your money. And this week, kind of hearing from different people, I'm realizing it's maybe impossible to do the one without the other. I'm not about church growth and riches. I'm about church health, but I'm realizing... If I'm passionate about church health, I have to include finance in the conversation um, with our own spiritual growth individually and our own corporate um, growth spiritually as a, as a church community. That we can't drive a wedge between finance and our hearts and, and act as if we can talk about the one without ever making reference to the other. My friend Rick McKinley in Portland said this, he says, if you go into a culture and you don't preach against the greatest form of idolatry and say that all these people came to Jesus but still worship this weird idol over here, then the question is, did you really preach the gospel at all? Um, and so that's kind of where I'm at. Uh, so this is the second of two, two messages on money. And I think really the heart of this message is to say... Um, Maybe we have more than we really think we do. Or maybe even if we don't have a lot of money and we desire to be a giving person, that somehow if our hearts are in the right place, the equation can change over time. God can make us aware of things we didn't know 
that we were rich in, or God can even bless things moving into the future uh, that would change the circumstances that we're in. If we would use the resource and opportunity that, that God gives us for his glory, maybe, just maybe, God will bless our path more than if our hearts are inclined to use all that comes for ourselves. So if you'll turn to Haggai chapter 1, I want to introduce us to something that's been pretty profound on, on my mind this week. Haggai chapter 1. Now you might miss Haggai. There's three prophets that are kind of post-exile prophets right at the end of the Old Testament before we get to Matthew. And Haggai, then Zechariah, then Malachi. Um, so Haggai is kind of the third to the last book in the, in the Old Testament. And let me just open us with a word of prayer and then we'll read from the word of the Lord. Father, um, I've got a lot, I've got a lot swimming around in my mind right now. And I pray not only for myself, but for everyone here that if there's something spiritual that can happen this morning, that you would still us, allow us to hear clearly Um, I pray that whatever is spoken, Father, would, would come from you, that we'd be able to get out of the way as much as possible. It's my desire, even if my faith is weak, we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Haggai begins this way, it says this, in the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, to Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is, the, uh, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. What's happened is uh, they've returned from the exile. They've been allowed to come back. And there was uh, some energy right when they got back to rebuild the temple. Um, King Solomon's temple had been destroyed and there had been this kind of move, this energy to rebuild the temple and then through apathy and kind of infighting that dissipates. And so God is saying in your heart or on your lips, either way your attitude is kind of saying or making this argument that nope, it's not time yet. It's not time for the Lord's house to be built. And then verse 3 says this, Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house, the temple, the Lord's house, remains a ruin? Verse 5, now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're never warm. You earn wages only to put them into a purse with holes in it. And God continues and says, give careful thought to your ways because you expect much and it won't happen. It'll come to ruin because each of you, verse 9, is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I myself called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine and oil, and whatever the ground produces on men and cattle and on the labor of your hands." I want you to take note of that on whatever the ground produces because this is an agrarian culture. Wealth begins first and foremost in the ground. Whether you have animals eating the crops or the crops for yourself, the ground produces the wealth. So God says you're running and chasing after stuff, but you can't quite get it. You're, you're cold and you want to be warm. You have a little bit less than what you think you should have, so you're going to work a little harder. And he goes, don't you understand that I'm actually pulling things away from you little by little. The reason you can't catch up all the way is, is not because you just need another hour or another day or another week or another year. You need to stop and realize that it's me who's doing this. I am doing this to the land, to the ground. And I'm doing it because your priorities are wrong, because you're, you're being disobedient, because you're not honoring me. And if you would stop and get your priorities right, and if you would stop and you would honor me, 
then I would make these things easier. In fact, I would bless you and things could go the way they're supposed to go because it's all flowing correctly. If you go down a a one-way street in the wrong direction, it clogs everything up. Everything comes to a halt. What God is saying is, is you're going the wrong way down a one-way street. If you were to turn around and go the right way, everything would cycle correctly. And I would bless the land and there would be what you need, what you need to have to be warm, to be well-fed. This is a fascinating passage to me on on many counts. Um, I want to take you back and just walk through uh, this idea of paneled houses and cedar. Deuteronomy 17, I put one verse, two verses from it here. But Deuteronomy 17 in the Old Testament is talking about the rules for the king. Someday when you're going to have a king, this is, this is what you need to know about the king. These are the rules. These are the param, uh, parameters. And God says when you have the king, um, he must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. Uh, he only needs one. Or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord your God, it says, you will never go back that way again. And he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, it goes on. He's supposed to know the law. He's supposed to write it out by hand. But there's something really interesting. The king is a position of privilege. But that privilege, a man of one wife with good character that only uh, has what is needed and then uses the rest of influence to serve others so that everyone may flourish. That's the the role of the king who's going to honor God. And abuse of power, abuse of, of that position, would be that it all becomes about me. Now everyone exists to serve me, and I'm going to begin to accumulate more than what I need. I'm going to multiply possessions, I'm going to become consumeristic, and I'm just going to grow my wealth and look at how great and grand I'll become. And God says that's not the way it's supposed to be. It's a complete reversal of how it's supposed to be. You use your privilege, you use your influence, what's more than what you need, you use that to serve others. Jeremiah 22 is a a fascinating passage and there's so much we can do with it, but I want to just point out this juxtaposition. Jeremiah 22, um, you may have heard it before, I've read it before. But God is condemning evil King Shalom and he says he's being led away into captivity because he's a bad king. And then verse 13, Jeremiah chapter 22, it says, Woe to him who builds his palace by unrighteousness, his upper rooms by injustice, making his countrymen work for nothing, not paying them for their labor. He says, I will build myself a great palace with spacious upper rooms. And so he makes large windows in it and he panels it with cedar. Does that phrase sound familiar again? He panels it with cedar and he decorates it in red. Now, does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Does it make you a king because you have more and more wealth, more and more possession, more and more stature? Is that how we measure this thing? Is that the metric? Because I thought that the whole measure of a king was how he stewarded his his influence on behalf of other people. I thought that's what it was. And so now God juxtaposes and he says, Did not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just, and so all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and the needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me? He drove the right way on the one-way street. He served other people, and all went well with him. He did what was right, and he did what was just, and he used his excess in a responsible way and stewarded it for the benefit of others. And, and he did this, and so I took care of him. I blessed him, I honored him, I made sure that he had enough. All went well and it worked as it was supposed to. And so you see this interesting thing going on with excess and specifically this idea of cedar, which is a luxury, which is not just I have my house, but I'm now paneling it in cedar. I've, I've provided for myself security, uh, a lodging, but now I'm, I'm going to go the extra to my, I'm going to go the extra mile and I'm going to really decorate it out. And I'm going to continue to dial it in and I own a home and I know what, I, and I'm married. It's, and so, and that, I didn't mean that to be a gender comment, sounded like it, um, but there's never an end to dialing in our houses, right? There's never an end to 
to getting the rooms to match. There's never an end to, to decorating. There's never an end to getting it fully usable. There's never an end to getting it the way you want it to be. Now, it's not that that's wrong, but so what's going on here is we're putting all this time and energy, it says in Haggai, into paneling our homes and going the extra mile. And the whole while, God's house is sitting um, and it's kind of half built or, or the beginnings of it are built and nobody's paying attention to that. Everybody's looking to their own interests and they're saying, yeah, it's not yet time. There'll come a time for things of God. There'll come a time for Christian ministry. There'll come a time for charity or benevolence or tithing or giving or serving or being involved. But the time's not yet. Why? I don't have the time. Why don't I have the time? Because I'm not done paneling my house with cedar. It's interesting also because I've got a picture of this. This, uh, The rebuilt temple, that's a picture from a Zonovan handbook of the Bible. The rebuilt temple, unlike King Solomon's temple, same dimensions, not the grandeur, but the rebuilt temple was made out of what? Want to guess? It was made out of cedar. It's made out of cedar. Cedar from the, uh, the forest in Lebanon, there's not many left. But way back when, thousands of years ago, there was a lot of cedar forests. And they would bring, uh, the top picture in the corner is how they would bring these, these logs down. So not only is it that I don't have the time or the energy to, to, to help with the building of the house of the Lord because I'm paneling my own house, but ultimately the resources that I'm paneling my own house with are resources that are being pulled away from the building of the house of the Lord. In other words, I'm making a choice of what's most important between two options that to some degree are intention for the same resources. I'm making a choice in Haggai with looking to my own interests and continuing it and continuing it and continuing it and continuing it and neglecting the house of the Lord and the things of the Lord. So why does that matter? Why does... Why does it matter that the house of the Lord get built? And you can do this on your own if you're a note taker. Ezekiel 37, 26. The temple was a sign of the covenant. And so in the return, this was a visible marker to say the covenant still exists. The God of Israel has not disappeared just because of the exile. God is with his people. And so this visible sign of being with the people is a part of making sure everybody understands we're in a covenant with our God. We're in a relationship with our God. And he has marked out the things that we're supposed to do. And as we do those things, treat each other justly and righteously, then he gets to bless us. And if we neglect those things, then, then he will, just like he did, discipline and help us understand that we're treating each other poorly and that that's not okay. So this temple had to be built. It was this incredibly important thing, scripture said, for the understanding of the community with regard to the temple and the covenant. So no small thing and we're paneling our houses in cedars. So just like the king who's supposed to use excess for the benefit of others, what we begin to see is that we can begin to be consumeristic and, and begin to accumulate wealth or possessions ourselves. And just like the king, God is saying, that's not what I created you for. That's not what is right and just. What is right and just is to take your influence and your privilege and to use it according to right principles and just principles. And not to multiply horses, to multiply gold, or to panel in cedar. But that's what the Old Testament says. Haggai's talking about the temple, which doesn't exist anymore, right? Ken, this is great and all, but you're talking about a group of people that needed to build a temple, a temple that doesn't exist anymore in the Old Testament, which in some ways has been fulfilled or passed away. Um, that's a different thing than today. It's not like there's this half-built temple that we see visually with our eyes and, and our wood that we're using on our houses is being taken from that temple, All right, so I want to switch to the New Testament. I want to switch to the New Testament and say, no, what we're talking about here is a principle that's still in effect. If you turn to Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13, this is how Jesus deals with the same situation. 
Luke chapter 12, verse 13, it says this. Now someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. In other words, he seems to, he's going to be walking away with the lion's share or the bulk or all of the inheritance in the ancient Near East. The, uh, that was kind of the inheritance rules was getting passed down that way. And, and so this younger brother is saying, hey, tell my brother that if, if he's really got a good heart, he would divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to him, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consi- uh, consist in the abundance of his possessions. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, which means there's more than one kind of greed, by the way. You can be greedy with your time. You can be greedy with your relationships. You can be greedy with the words that come from your mouth. Use them for yourself to always justify yourself rather than building community health. Uh, There's all kinds of greed. Greed with money. um, Greed with influence. But be on your guard against all kinds of greed because a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he tells them this parable, verse 16. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops because I have this excess. The first thing to notice here is what made the, the man rich? What made the man rich? The ground made the man rich. The ground of this rich man um, bore fruit, created wealth for him. Wealth that came because of rains, wealth that came because of weather, wealth that came because of minerals or nutrients in the soil, wealth that came because of um, where, according to the equator, this person lived in the growing season and everything else. People that came before this man and cleared the rocks from this field. Whatever it is, but the ground produced the wealth. And there's something significant there. Um, this person did not create the wealth out of a vacuum on their own. It wasn't just the hard work. It wasn't just the smarts or the intelligence. But the ground produced the wealth. And he says, so what am I going to do? I have this excess now, let me uh, draw this out for, for us real quick if this is going to work. So tell me if it's not going to work. So if I drop the pen and the top comes off, then it doesn't work, and I dropped the pen, but I didn't think the top came off. It's not going to work. We can do it charades, charade style. Um, so there's a, there's a bar I mean, we don't know where it is, but we all know there's a bar. There has to be a bar where somewhere I toggle over from what I really need to now my needs are met. We know there's a bar somewhere, right? And what had happened with this man is more things had come in than he needed. The bar was exceeded, and it was exceeded greatly. And so now he had this question, what do I do with all of this excess this privilege, this opportunity. And he says, I know. I'll, I'll build a savings account, a mutual fund, an IRA. I'll build somewhere where I can put it and, and store it and keep it away for if and when I might need it. Maybe even for other people to see my wealth, the stature symbol. In some cultures, the size of your herd really sets the stature for you in that culture. And so you want a lot of animals You want people to see that your herd is big. Um, Keith Wright's taught me that that's one of the problems of of when a drought comes and then all the animals die and then people are looking for maybe some foreign government to come along and help them with some sort of famine relief to, to pay for or to help them rebuild the flocks when they could have known the famine was coming and gone and sold these animals on market and gotten the value, but culturally... They wanted the size of the flocks. So there could be even the sense where this man wants the barns because it's a stature symbol. So he, he's met his bar. He's got the excess, and that creates an opportunity. So what's he going to do with it? And he enlarges himself 
And he adds to his possessions and he adds to his, his prestige. He doesn't take and use the opportunity to serve or to bless or to invest in the work that God would have or the people that God is trying to help out. So this is what the guy decides. So Jesus continues. And he says this. Um, then he says, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, what's the equivalent of that today? I'll tear down my current barns and build bigger barns. And then I'll store my extra there. My two-car garage doesn't hold the boat or the trailer or the jet ski. I need to sell, liquidate this house, get a bigger house with a three-car garage that will accumulate, uh, accommodate these things. Um, and by the way, I'm not trying to like say if you have a, I mean, I'm going to grab a lot of examples. And that doesn't mean if you have a boat, you're evil, or if you have a second house or whatever. But, but what's the principle here? When we have more than we need, we can look at it and say, now I can step up. I have the resources and the opportunity to step up. And then all the kids will have their own rooms. And then we'll be in a, a neighborhood where everyone else has houses of this kind of size and there's a prestige or a status thing. Or we can keep this house and begin to multiply houses which create different opportunities for us to enjoy life. How can we leverage these resources that way? But there's a way that we typically do it in a consumeristic culture in America. In some sense, this is expected of us. That we begin to take what's, what we have that is more than what we need and we're going to begin to try to figure out how to leverage it for the American dream. And, and I don't know how we can square the American dream with Scripture. I know it's in my own heart. Um, I'd be lying to you if I said it wasn't. I don't know about you. I don't know that I've ever, I've ever met anyone in America that didn't somehow want the American dream. That the job would just keep getting better and better. That the work hours would keep getting less and less. That the retirement would continue to grow and grow. That the opportunities would, would be there for succeeding. I... I, it's, it's in me. I think, I think it's in most of us. But it's exactly what Jesus is saying here. That the pattern is going to go that we use the excess more and more to succeed and less and less to invest into the kingdom of God. So this is how Jesus continues. He says, the guy's going to build the bigger barns, tear down the old ones, liquidate the old ones, move up. And then take life easy. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? And then this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. So two things here. The first is the word fool. The word fool all throughout scripture is um, a formulaic word. It's a very technical word. It's, it's not just a plain kind of the court jester word. The, the word fool literally means the, the embodiment of or the example of the person that does not give thought to their ways or does not consider God with their decisions or their actions. The fool is always juxtaposed to the godly person or the righteous person that considers their steps, considers their ways, and factors God into the conversation, seeks God's guidance on what it is they do. So we see all throughout scripture that these are kind of the two, uh, two po uh, poles. These are, these are the two opposing camps, the two different examples. And so God is literally saying in this parable that this person, the person who was blessed, whose land gave them all this wealth, this person was a fool because they didn't consider God in their decisions. They didn't give thought even to their ways knowing that somehow life doesn't just go on, it doesn't always go the way you plan, and ultimately it's not all about you. 
So God says, you fool. So the person that, that is measuring life by the abundance of possessions, when they have more than what they need and there's excess and they use that excess to pursue the American dream or consumer lifestyle, that this person who's caught up in that narrative is a fool and not giving thought to their ways or considering God in their decisions. The second thing that Jesus says here is that this parable is for all of us. That anyone who lives this way, it'll be like that with them if they store up things for themselves but are not rich toward God. In other words, we all sit kind of under the umbrella of this parable and Jesus is saying you can store up things for yourself. You can be greedy, meaning your time, your energy, your money, your influence, your words, all of these things that give you influence or, or, or ability, excess, opportunity. You can be greedy and use all those things to get ahead, to pursue success in the American dream. Or in opposite to that, which, which is the foolish way, you can be rich toward God. What does that mean to be rich toward God? Well, it's the same thing that God was saying in Haggai. In Haggai, God was saying, you say that it's not yet time to build the temple, yet you panel your own houses with cedar. Jesus says you can spend your energy and your wealth to store up your treasures on earth, to accumulate things for yourself, or you can be rich toward God. What does it mean to be rich toward God? So Haggai talked about the house of God and respect of God so that we would value the work of God. He wanted us to get our priorities right. Jesus talks about our hearts and the respect of God so that we would value the work of God. He talks to us about getting our priorities right. Haggai is not just for the Old Testament. We see Haggai all over the New Testament, the same principles, the same idea as Jesus would say that we would be rich toward God. I, uh, I think that what describes this best is this phrase, one for one. We, my wife and I played with this when, when I was writing my book, but it was this concept that Tom Shoes has for um, you buy a shoe and a pair of shoes are given. And, and I'm not saying anything about Tom's shoes. I'm just saying that phrase. I like that phrase, one for one. Does that make sense? And so we tried that. We were like, um, we had the example of a friend of mine in college named Pat. And Pat and his wife would think of a great vacation. They would plan the vacation and then they would give it away to somebody else. And it was their way of knowing they were giving their best to other people and being rich toward others, right? And they had so much fun in it. They would literally plan a vacation and then bless somebody that they, they knew couldn't do that um, if they wanted to. And so we were thinking about this. And so my wife and I had an opportunity for a cheap vacation. It was like a special deal. And so, so we, we thought it would be really cool. So we bought it up and then we tried to give it away. And, and we gave it to someone that could really use it and wanted it and needed it. Um, and then they canceled like a couple weeks later. And then we tried to give it to somebody else and then they couldn't use it. And then the whole thing expired and it was a great flop. Um, <laughs> and we haven't done it since. Um, but, I, but I think there's something going on here with this one for one kind of idea. That if we really understand that it's God who brings wealth, uh, there's a verse, 1 Samuel 2.7 says this, the Lord sends poverty and wealth, he humbles and he exalts. The Lord sends poverty and wealth, he humbles and he exalts. The first fruits is really saying, God, you're the one that produced the fruit. I mean, the same is true with church, right? Um, Paul planted, Apollos watered those church communities, but it was God who made it grow. So the first fruits of are really a way of saying, God, this wealth or, or my resource comes from you. I'm recognizing that. But so this idea that the land and the fruit comes and we have all of this, that as we're dividing it up or deciding how are we going to use 
what's more than what we need, how are we going to use it, that, that if we really had God sitting there with us, it would kind of be like one for me, one for you. One for me, one for you. It would be really awkward if God was sitting there and we said, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven for me, one for you. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven for me, one for I mean, that would be really awkward if God was sitting there, wouldn't it? But is that maybe what we do? Thinking that somehow the conversation about money or about excess or about opportunity or about wealth and possessions is, is distinct from or different than our relationship with God. And the reason the Bible talks so much about money is it is absolutely central to our relationship with God. If we don't honor God with our money, then we don't honor God. It's not just that, well, that's a different conversation, but I really honor you, God. Living compartmentalized like that just doesn't work with best friends. It doesn't work with, with marriages. It doesn't, you know what I'm saying? Like compartmentalized lives like that aren't honest lives. They're not integrous lives. We don't think there's fidelity there. And God is saying, if you don't honor me with your money, you're not honoring me. I know the decisions that you're making. I know the priorities that you have. And I also know what we could do for the kingdom if you would change those priorities. In fact, going one step further, I know some of the struggles you have. You keep trying to get more and you think things are just out of reach. And don't you understand I'm waiting to have a conversation with you about that? That I'm not blessing some, some of the things that you're involved with. I'm, I'm withholding that blessing and I'm waiting with that so that we can realign and go the right way down a one-way street and, and then we can come together and do these right and just. It's pretty hard. I, I talked to a lot of people this week that are saying, this is like a really tyrannical message for me when I don't have anything. And I think um, my answer to that was the same every single time. That tension that we feel is a really, really good tension because it forces conversation. Our prayers with God are, are way too transactional. God, I need this. Um, if you're so inclined, give it to me. If not, I'll figure it out myself. I'm pretty good at that. I've been doing it most of my life. But I'll give you the chance if you want to make it easy on me. But our, our prayer life with God often is characterized by requests. I think if we're in conversation with somebody that's incredibly intimate with us and going the same direction and even in authority over us, conversation would be characterized not by requests but by dialogue, right? Prayer ought to be a dialogue. It ought to be to where, uh, where we go to God and we seek guidance. God, I have a heart to be generous. I don't feel like I have the resources, so either show me what I have that I don't, I don't know that I have Maybe I have some relationships I can be generous with. Maybe I can put people together and orchestrate things and network. Maybe, maybe there are things I have access to that I'm not seeing. And if so, show me that so that I can be generous and rich toward you, God. Um, or bless me. Or show me what I need to do so that you can bless me. Or, 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 or just help me figure out how to walk in this tension of wanting to be somebody that has the opportunity to give, but feeling like my bar isn't even met. Is there a lesson I need to learn? Whatever it is, I'll walk with endurance and I'll continue to talk with you as long as this, this kind of awkward feeling is there. Because if that awkwardness is there, I have to have someone to talk to about it. What's the answer to, I get asked the question all the time, what was the answer to suffering in Job? Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? What's the answer? Do you guys know what the answer is? Well, most people will say, God said, I'm big, so shut up. I mean, that's kind of like what people think. God came to Job and says, you shouldn't be asking me questions. I'm bigger than you are. Now, God 
did say that. that. That wasn't the point of what God was saying. And that wasn't why Job walked away and felt like he was answered. Here's what answered the quandary for Job. God spoke. God talked to Job. I don't know about you, but there's a lot of big decisions I have in my life and a lot of big stresses and a lot of big fears. And the thing I need most is not the answer, but the presence of God. If God shows up and I know he's speaking to me, then I'm good, just like Job. I'm good. If you're here and you know what I'm going through and you say you got it, like, I don't need to know anymore. I just needed to know that I wasn't alone. I needed to know that I wasn't crazy. I needed to know that this faith I have wasn't just something I cooked up or someone taught me when I was a kid or, or just some kind of wish fulfillment. And the fact that you spoke makes me know that you're real, makes me know that my faith is validated, makes me know that, that you're big, makes me know that I can wait this thing out. So what answered Job wasn't the answer itself. It was the voice of God. The voice of God is what has power. The voice of God is what creates. The voice of God is ultimately what we need. And the voice of God is not what we're looking for when we're making requests of God. The voice of God is what we seek, however, when we open up dialogue and seek guidance from God. Do you see the subtle difference? So whether you have a lot of money, with big retirement accounts, which are not in and of themselves bad. It could, in your situation, be responsible. I don't know. I don't know what you're a steward over. Or if you're somebody that doesn't feel like you have anything. The tension is good if we take it to God in conversation. Because now we're saying, I'm not taking my direction from the idol of an American dream and success this way. God, I'm willing to take my direction from you and I'm willing to give you input into my life. I'm willing to let your priorities be spoken in to my decision making. I'm not the fool. I'm really, as awkward as it feels, willing to be or desirous of being rich toward God. Tim Keller says this, don't sit down with a calculator to give your money away. Sit down with a cross. Jesus was the picture of the king who had it right. In Philippians chapter 2, it says, He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself out of div d uh, divine power and attributes and was willing to serve. The king in Deuteronomy 17 really is fulfilled best in Christ. That's the story of the gospel. That all of this is first and best completed by Christ. So we don't have to try and be perfect in all of this. We seek to learn and to follow and know that there's grace for us as we're trying to figure it out. There's relationship. Christ has paved the way. There is good news. The gospel says something about all of this. So we don't sit down with a calculator to give our money away. We sit down with the cross. Basically, that's baptism too today. There's a lot of people getting baptized. I have two daughters getting baptized. There's some older, newer Christians. There's some older people in the congregation who have been Christians for a while, and this is the time that they've chosen to make this public stand. But baptism is literally symbolizing death to self and new life in Christ. Not that we're perfect from that day moment, uh, from that uh, moment forward, but the idea is simply saying, I want to be dead to self and alive in you, Christ. And I know I have this promise from you that you will continue to work that out in me. And so I'm committing my life to that, to that process, to factoring you into deci uh, to decisions and priorities and to not going it alone. That's my public commitment of identifying with you. If you're, if you're sitting there today and you're like, I, I've, <laughs> I've never been baptized. I've never really chosen to kind of commit which way I, I want to go in life or where I stand, then today you can still get baptized. At the end, we're going to have a meeting. Come find me. I would love for you to choose to be baptized today. Um, it's an incredibly beautiful picture of what's going on with the gospel and our relationship with Jesus Christ. 
So here's the big tension. Ken, if God was here, I'd gladly give him my money and my wealth and my resources. But he's not. You are. And I don't know that I trust you. I don't, I don't know that I trust me either. I, I don't know that I trust churches. I don't know that I trust elder boards. I do trust the elder board. So I think there's a lot of people saying, if God was here, I'd be the first to stand up and just give it and be rich to God. But he's not here. I have to go through these broken human institutions. And I don't, I don't, I don't know that I trust them with my treasure. And there's something really profound going on here. And here's what it is. If you're sitting here, you trust the church with your heart and your soul. If you're sitting here and you have kids in the kids' ministry, you're trusting this church and the leadership and the elders with the hearts and minds of your children. And I bet you haven't given it a whole lot of thought other than you've made the decision and you're here. But do you see, do you see that great irony? Is our money a greater treasure than our own hearts and minds and the, and the hearts and minds of our kids? such that we'll trust churches with these, but not with this. Do you see that? That's why I'm beginning to realize if I care about your hearts, I have to talk about your treasure. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so we trust God, we trust the things of God, even if they're not perfect, knowing that we're doing it in faith, and even if the human institutions aren't perfect, God is faithful to those who put their faith in him and trustworthy to those who trust him. Rick McKinley, again, he says this, if you go into a culture, I read it at the beginning, and you don't preach against the greatest form of idolatry and say that all these people came to Jesus but still worshiped this weird idol over here, the question is, did you really preach the gospel at all? Haggai said this. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? The title of this message, I don't always title them. The title of this message was Rich Toward God, Money in the Gospel Part 2. Thank you. <laughs>